and welcome to 15 Days of Festive Fear, day number 12. And I have five spooky stories for you today. And the last story comes from February the 13th, 2021. And story number one comes from Claire Rose. When I saw the title of your most recent episode, The Wolves with the Red Eyes, I felt a shiver run down my spine. I thought surely I was mistaken. But as I continued to listen, my blood ran cold. I have never heard of anyone else having an experience similar to my own encounter with the wolf. Interestingly, I also have a connection to the other story you featured in that episode. We recently found out that the house where I lived my entire life was built very close to what used to be the city gallows. The house itself is fairly modern, built in the 70s or 80s, and we have lived there since the early 90s. So knowing what the ground was used for previously goes some way to explaining the unusual phenomenon that occurred in the house. Nothing major in the grand scheme of hauntings, an unsettling atmosphere sometimes and a few bumps and bangs in the night. One bedroom that was always much colder than the rest of the house. A ghostly hand reaching up to grasp my mother's foot while she was in bed in that same bedroom. One day I was rehearsing for a play and part of the script was that I had to whistle. So I did one long, low whistle. And after a second's pause, something in the hallway whistled back. Me and my mum were on our own in the house at the time and both sat in the living room, so we had no idea who or what could have been replying to me. A few years ago, my mum had the house blessed and the activity has died down. The only thing that has happened in recent years was me being awoken in the early hours of my birthday last year to someone gently patting the top of my head. I didn't feel scared or frightened at all and quickly fell back asleep. So I'm sure in this instance it was my grandfather, who passed many years ago, popping by to say hello and to wish me a happy birthday. I wish I could say there is a more pleasant explanation for what happened to me when I was a child, which is the main reason for me writing in. I should preface this by saying that as a child I had a mortal terror of wolves, despite living in the UK where I was unlikely to ever encounter one. The big bad wolf always scared me in fairy tales. We had a children's book of animal pictures with a page of wolves. My brother used to torment me by getting the book and holding it out towards me. Before he even turned the page to the wolves I would go rigid with fear and beg him not to show me. We also had a puppet of Red Riding Hood, which when you turned it inside out became the wolf wearing the grandmother's clothes, which now that I think about it is a pretty messed up toy to give a child. I don't remember exactly how old I was, maybe six or so, when we were staying over at my grandparents' house one night. I was sleeping on the bottom bunk bed with my brother fast asleep on the top bed. I can't remember what I was dreaming about, but I suddenly snapped awake with a voice next to my ear cackling and saying, It's a shame you forgot about the big bad wolf. I sat up, and right there, standing at the foot of my bed, was a huge, dark wolf. I hesitate to use the word demonic, but there was something evil about it. It leered at me out of the darkness, grinning so I could see its teeth. I shot out of bed and into the hallway. I raced to the top of the stairs as I didn't know how late it was and thought my mother or my grandparents might still be downstairs. The whole house was in darkness and slowly slinking up the stairs towards me was another wolf, just the same as the one in my bedroom. I turned around and ran back past my bedroom. As I passed the door, I could see the wolf stalking out of my bedroom towards me. 
I ran past and straight into my mum's room where I jumped into bed with her and pulled the covers up over my head, terrified to look around in case the wolves were still following me. This experience scared me so much that I didn't speak about it for over 18 years. When I went away to university I was with a new group of friends and we started swapping spooky stories. For some reason the time seemed right to mention the wolf, although even after all that time just talking about it scared me and I was half convinced it would be there in my uni room that night. It wasn't, thank goodness. I mentioned it to my mum afterwards and she just said, Yeah, I remember that night and I remember you telling me about the wolf. She hadn't mentioned it to me in the morning because obviously she didn't want to scare me more and perhaps she thought it had been a dream. But I know it wasn't a dream. Even if the voice in my ear had been a dream and even if I'd still been half asleep when I saw the wolf at the foot of my bed, I wasn't, by the way, then that doesn't explain why I was still seeing the wolves as I ran up and down the hallway. I don't know what seeing demon wolves means, but the fear that still fills me to this day thinking about it makes me certain it can't be any kind of good energy. That story sparked more response than maybe any other stories that we've done in terms of listener stories. So when we released that episode, The Wolf with the Red Eyes or The Wolves with the Red Eyes, I mean, it was quite a long time ago now, but it was a mini episode. And the person who told the story had said, you know, I've never really shared this. I don't know if other people have experienced it. And I can't tell you how many emails I've gotten since. And obviously, as people listen to that episode, if they're late starting the podcast and they listen to the episode, like I still get emails now saying I experienced the wolves when I was a child too. And who like, is it because wolves are like we're told stories about wolves as children? Like the three little pigs that has wolves in it. You've got Red Riding Hood has a wolf in it. And therefore... It's natural that we would see wolves as something to be really frightened of. Even if, like Claire Rose said, you're not likely to see a wolf in the UK. I just, I I find it fascinating that 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 story in particular triggered so many responses. I think the only one that we've had similar has been The Man in the Hat. Where people have gone, I've seen The Man in the Hat too. Because even when people write in about their sleep paralysis stories, they're often... They vary in some degrees, but the man in the hat and the wolves, seeing these spectral wolves, seems to be quite more common than I think I would have thought. So I hope in some way it gives people who have experienced it some sort of feeling of, oh, I'm not alone with this one. Maybe we need to set up a a wolf support group. That's what we need to do. And story number two comes from Sakura. This happened after the ceremonies for one of our students who passed away in a car accident also after my first day of junior year in high school, and during the ceremonies was the last time I ever saw my English teacher alive and well. The last words I ever heard from my English teacher were, I will see you next school year and I know you will do just fine. Two weeks later and it was September when I first started my junior year. However, little did I know that my first coming back turned out to be a very sombre day. His assistant teacher broke out the news and told everyone in her class that my English teacher had passed away in his sleep. I was genuinely in shock because my English teacher, who I knew from my sophomore year, was nothing but a healthy man in his 60s. He usually lectured about his favourite poet Edgar Allan Poe and his behaviour didn't give away any health conditions for anyone to notice. I deeply respected my English teacher who was willing to help me when I was struggling to understand my English class despite his questionable taste of style consisting of Hawaiian tourist shirts and khaki shorts. After hearing the news of his sudden passing, I was at my lowest point mentally. First, the girl that passed away during the car accident was my acquaintance, 
and then my English teacher passed away in his sleep. It was overwhelming and caused my mental stability to decline. That night I went to bed early after I ate dinner with my family and I was so exhausted that I quickly slipped into a deep slumber. In my dream I was walking in the dark void and within this dark void I heard ticking from a clock. I started to walk forward following the ticking sound until I came across an all-white bricked room with a wall clock in the middle of it. What's interesting about this room is that on the left side the room was bright and there were people walking in circles. On the right side the room was dimly lit and there were a lot of people walking in circles. So many people that they looked squished when they were trying to walk. As I scanned both sides of the room I recognised only one person in that dimly lit room and it was my English teacher. I called out for him to get his attention. He slowly stopped and looked in my direction. His face was pale, almost corpse-like but without decaying. His expression was blank. I woke up from my dream, my heart was pounding and I couldn't help but breathe heavily. That dream was the first one that was very surreal and bizarre before all the other ones that came years after. It could be that the reason that I have this dream is that I was dealing with the grief which may conjure this imagery but I'm not entirely sure. However, since that time it was September, it might mean that the veil between the afterlife and our physical realm had been lifted which makes sense because September has a fall equinox. I'm not an expert, so maybe you guys can think of a more logical way. So this story interested me because it highlighted something I think that happens to a lot of us in our lives and then you don't quite know how to process it. And I think when somebody in your periphery, somebody in your life, even if they're not really close relative, when somebody dies suddenly, whether that's a car accident or a health issue or whatever it is, and you're not expecting it, it can be really hard to figure that out. I think when when somebody dies, when they've been sick for a long time or when they're older, it doesn't make it any easier, but it is more expected and you can rationalise it in a different way. But when what you perceive as a young person dies, then it becomes more difficult to deal with. And I think think for a lot of people, their, their brain struggles to comprehend the fact that somebody can be taken away so quickly and their sense of mortality, their own sense of mortality changes and you suddenly become really quite panicked about the fact that you can die at any minute, which is a bit of a bit of a morbid way to look at it. But I do, you know, I think dream dreams after some people die, it's whatever you take from them. Like you might get closure from it. If it gives you closure, that's the most important thing. It doesn't really matter whether it's provable or whether you can you can say it definitely means this. It's what you take from it. And if it gives you closure, then that makes it a good thing. And story number three comes from Terry. My maternal grandmother was from Donegal. And this is a story of something that happened to her brother in the 1930s. Now the thing is, banshees are only supposed to visit people with a Mac or an O in their name. This part of my family has neither. One night, this man had left the girl he was courting and was walking home, which was not far since they both lived in a very small village. When he reached the front door of his family home, which was always open, he heard a spine-chilling, screeching wail. And yep, You know what it was. It was a banshee. Aware of what it was, he rushed inside and told my great-grandmother, his mother. She had not heard it, but when he said what he thought it was, she blessed herself, slipped to her knees on the hard stone floor beside the range and said a prayer. 
She too knew what it meant and felt pity for the family who would have death visit their home that night. The next morning, as he finished breakfast and prepared to leave with his father and brothers to work in the field down the road, my great-uncle saw a boy coming into the yard. It was his girlfriend's little brother. Entering the house since the door was never closed, his eyes were red from crying and he couldn't speak. When my great-uncle calmed him and asked him what was wrong, he told him that his sister, the girl my relative had left the previous evening, was dead. She had died in her sleep and she was only 19. Some years later, my great-uncle was on his way home from the bar across the street. It was a summer's night and he could see the rear family home, turf smoke rising from the chimney, lamplight beyond the drawn curtains. Pausing to light one last cigarette before crossing the street, as piano music drifted out of the open lounge window, he heard the wail that he knew meant only one thing. Although a religious man, he respected the old ways, as many did in those times and still do. He turned to his left and looked across the crossroads to where the church stood. Blessing himself, he whispered a short prayer, as he had seen his mother do that last time he had heard it. He took a last drag on his cigarette, dropped it on the ground and put it out. When he got into the house, his younger brother offered him a cup of tea, as the kettle was just boiled. Suspecting his mother was in bed, he kept his voice low as he regaled his brother with what went on that evening. His brother asked him if he had heard the banshee. Nodding in confirmation, he put a cigarette to his mouth, his hand trembling slightly. They both knew what it meant. The next morning, one of their sisters discovered their mother dead on her bed. My great-uncle never married and died a bachelor in his early 80s. Now I have another story, but this time it is some 100-odd miles to the east in Belfast. As Belfast became increasingly industrialised by the late 1880s, more and more people moved from the rural counties to the larger towns and cities to work in the linen, shipbuilding and other manufacturing industries. I remember my father recalling something his father told him about an incident that occurred in Belfast following the partition of Ireland in 1921. By this time, many Catholic men found themselves out of work, barred from working in Protestant-dominated jobs. So many large families were forced to share tiny mill houses in areas where they had to live in squalor, pushed from their homes by sectarianism as Catholics became a minority in a Protestant state of Northern Ireland, which occupied six of Ulster's nine counties. Despite this, it is still referred to as Ulster or the province. Partition had created religious and economic refugees on both sides of the newly drawn border and all enmities resurfaced, as they often did, and would continue to do so for the remainder of the 20th century and claim the lives of at least 5,000 people. With no links to the newly formed Free State, many Catholics born in the North had little choice but to congregate in tight-knit communities like the Falls Road for safety as they tried to find work on the local mills and with them they brought traditions, lore, and spirits. One night, as a group of men congregated to gossip, play cards or pitch and toss, with some vigilant individual watching out for Protestant gunmen infiltrating their area, they heard a scream from a house down the street. In the darkness of the dimly lit street, with smoke from thousands of chimneys hanging low, he spotted a small figure running out of a house and darting across the street towards an alley, pursued by the inhabitants. 
alerting a group of local men, they gave chase to what they thought was a hostile and found a small, cowering figure covered by a black shawl. Trying to identify it, in the darkness, one man stepped towards it, brandishing a cudgel and an oil lamp. What happened next caused the group of brave, hard men to shrink back in fear as what appeared to be a small woman with long white hair turned on her pursuers and let out a withering shriek that a few of the former country dwellers couldn't mistake for anything other than the harbinger of death, the female fairy, a banshee. And with that she darted past the crowd and vanished into the shadows and smog of industrial Belfast to carry her message of death. A pact was made to keep the incident a secret between those who had seen it, for they knew the fate of those close to whomever heard the banshee, and only on his deathbed did the last surviving witness divulge what they had seen. And so, as the traditions and respect for the old ways faded, with the expansion of cities swollen by the population of the rural areas, perhaps the old spirits evolved to fill our nightmares with shadow spirits, tricksters in the form of poltergeists and other more sinister supernatural spirits. I hope you enjoyed these stories. I have more, and the more of your listener stories I hear, the more of my own I recall from my own family and community. There is always someone with a spine-chilling gem, passed from a long-deceased relative just waiting to share that one story that was too frightening to be retold. By this stage, you guys know my feelings about the Banshee. If you guys are new around here, if you've not listened to me talk about the Banshee before, episode number three, I talk about the Banshee. Interestingly, my friend who submitted a story for that episode, who wanted to remain anonymous, her surname doesn't have an O or a Mac in it. And I wonder if, if, if you know, if it, when it passes down the female line, when those women get married and lose their O or their Mac, that they still retain the Banshee because they're from that lineage. That's my thinking behind it. Secondly, I love the idea that these legends, these ghost stories, these old, the old ways that we're losing them slowly, which of course we are as things modernize and change. And therefore we're experiencing different hauntings now than we did then. Or they're manifesting in a different way. How interesting is that? I've not thought about that before. And story number four comes from Sean. Many people have a before and after in their lives, a point where everything changed. Mine was when I was 11. It was 2002 and my father was on disability due to a back injury and my mother worked part-time for a church. Needless to say, we didn't have much. The bills piled up and we lost our home. In the summer after fifth grade, we moved to a new town. I was set to start middle school without knowing anyone there. That was traumatising enough. What was worse was the house that we moved into. The thing about small town Pennsylvania is that it's packed with old creepy farmhouses. Now they aren't old by European standards mind you, but this one did date back to the late 1700s. It was an enormous five bedroom, three bathroom white farmhouse. There were two staircases, the main staircase from the unused front door and the back stairs off the kitchen in the back of the house. Due to the orientation of the driveway and the deteriorated state of the front porch, everyone entered the house through the kitchen. From the look of it, the kitchen was a new addition from some time in the last 20 years or so, and this made it the safest feeling room in the whole house. When I was a child, I didn't believe in ghosts or spirits or demons. I went to church with my mom every Sunday because I was forced to go. 
When I was younger, my mom once had our pastor exercise our old house because she found out my sister had been practicing witchcraft. I watched and laughed. My demeanor towards demons and spirits changed when we moved into the farmhouse. I was grateful for the back stairwell in the house because it meant I never had to use the front stairs. In fact, the whole year my family lived there, I had only used the front stairs twice, both times on the first day we moved into the house. The back stairs led right to my room and had no view of the front of the house. I mentioned the front stairs because they were the first point that you felt it. The eyes watching you. They were always watching. A foreboding presence laid in that house and it wanted to hurt us. The first real interaction any of us had with the spirit was when my sister and her fiancé were going to bed one night in her room at the front of the house by the top of the front stairs. My future brother-in-law was making fun of the spirit and talking about how it wasn't real. At this point, both of my sisters, my brother, my mother and myself all had agreed it felt like something was watching us in that house. My brother-in-law said, If you're real, turn the bedroom lights off, thinking that nothing would happen. An audible click was heard as the lights turned off. He laughed and said, It's an old house, it's probably bad wiring, turn them on again. Another audible click was heard, followed by the lights turning on and off rapidly, each time with an audible click like someone was pulling the chain from the light on the ceiling. My sister and her fiancé slept in the living room that night. I never had any direct interaction with the spirit or demon, though I did hear it. The stairs to the attic lay behind a door near my bedroom. On still nights, I would hear scraping coming from the attic. It sounded as if something heavy was being dragged across the attic floor. Occasionally, I would hear what sounded like footsteps. Then one night, I heard the worst sound I have ever heard in my life. A blood-curdling scream came from above. This was in the middle of the night and the rest of my family were asleep. I was so petrified I actually crawled under my bed and hid until the morning. When I finally came out and sprinted downstairs, my family were in the kitchen having breakfast. I asked them if anyone screamed last night. But no one had and no one else had heard it. When I've mentioned these things to most people, they seem to think one of my family members had been in the attic playing tricks on me. But since the doorway to the attic was so close to my bedroom, I always knew when someone was going up or down from there because I could hear them. The farmhouse was not a quiet place when people were moving around. It was unnerving when it was quiet because of how unusual that was. After a year of living in that house, my parents finally divorced. It was a long time coming. But that demon always put and kept people on edge. And there aren't many people who are able to work on relationship issues when they're stressed out and angry. My mother is a devout Christian. And to this day, she refuses to talk about that house. She doesn't like thinking about how we as a family spent a year in a house with a potential demon. And I know she partially blames that house and that spirit for her divorce from my father. After a year of living there, our family moved out now broken. My mother spoke the final words to that house before she shut the car door. She yelled, There, you can have the house. It's yours. And we drove off. I don't know if I ever believed it's just your family playing tricks on you explanation for things in general. Like I've got three older siblings and like we were mean to each other growing up, but we'd always tell each other, you know, you'd end up if you played a prank that was that good, that scared somebody so much. 
you definitely wanted them to know that it was you in the end, you know? Although Noel Gallagher and Liam Gallagher from Oasis, one of them convinced the other one that their house was haunted for years just by really subtly moving <laughs> moving furniture and stuff. But then he's since come out and admitted it, admitted that he did it. I say that like it's a big scandal, but I just thought it was really funny. I mean, I don't know. I just don't think it's a, I just don't think it's a great reason for these things to happen. And you make a very good point. If a relationship has some glaring issues, it's really hard to work on those issues when you're under a huge amount of stress and having a demon in your house, I'd imagine is pretty fucking stressful. And story number five comes from Vic. I had just graduated college and at the ripe age of 22 signed a lease for my very own studio apartment in Long Beach, California. Tiny backstory on Long Beach. It's a port city, home of the infamously haunted Queen Mary naval ship which I also have a haunting story about when I snuck in one Halloween, and became a huge urban hub in the early 1900s with the birth of its now defunct Boardwalk Amusement Park, which you may be familiar with, as another famous Long Beach story includes a funhouse attraction with a mummy dummy prop that turned out to be an actual mummified body of a Wild West criminal. The apartment I lived in was built in the 1920s, and on the first night I slept there alone, I met her. I was woken up to a girl with long brown hair standing at the foot of my bed. Her face was expressionless, almost featureless, and she started moving towards me. I often lucid dream and frequently suffer from sleep paralysis, so I thought it might be that. In lucid dreaming, the way to wake yourself up is to try turning on a light, which won't do anything in a dream. I got out of bed and brushed by her, walking over to my floor lamp, I thought as soon as I turned on the light, I would wake up. Instead, right before I flipped the switch, I turned to see her crawl into my bed and cover herself with my sheets, as if she was just lying down to sleep. I flipped the switch and the light came on. I was still standing there staring at my bed, frozen, and she was gone. Or was she? I continued living there for another 18 months, but I never turned off my lights. For a year and a half, I kept a small lamp and fairy lights on at all times. Friends staying over had trouble sleeping from the light, but it was the only thing that made me feel okay. I've always felt a connection with the paranormal and the supernatural, and this experience helped me to learn more about cohabiting with spirits such as this one. To be fair, I never felt threatened, but I felt I was intruding on a space that wasn't mine. 18 months later, I said goodbye to an empty apartment and I still have lucid dreams back in that apartment to this day. That ghost girl was clearly thinking, I'm sorry, why are you in my bed? She was probably just as confused as you were when you were in her bed and she was standing there trying to figure out how to get in without making it weird. And you did all the work for her, got out of bed, turned on the light and she was able to crawl into bed and go back to sleep. How disturbing. I was not expecting you to say that she crawled into the bed and pulled the sheets up over her. No, no. I'd be like, no. Girl, you do not sleep in that bed anymore. I don't think I'd ever sleep in the bed again, to be honest. Thank you so much to Claire Rose, Sakura, Terry, Sean and Vic for sending in your stories. And if you would like to send in your story, you can do so by emailing it to reallifeghoststoriespodcast at gmail.com. You can also check out our website, reallifeghoststoriespodcast.com. And on that note, I shall see you next time.